Amen. All right. Um, once you get your Bibles, uh, please. And uh, in just a moment, we're going to turn to a couple verses, and we're going to read uh, a little bit more lengthy, but you may have already opened there to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. We've been focusing on that for three weeks. This finalizes our week on the series together. Today, we're calling this uh, The Grip of Gathering. And what we've been talking about for the last several weeks is having an encounter with God and doing that together. There's no substitute for our private encounter with God where we are in our prayer closet, whether that might be your car, and that is always a good place to, uh, to pray, especially if you have to drive into Atlanta. So wherever you spend time with God in His Word, in prayer, meditation, you can expect to have an encounter with Him. And aren't you thankful for those moments when you just go, wow, I just sense the presence of God. He's speaking to me through His Word. He's speaking to me through so many different sources. And there's no substitute for that, but there's also no substitute for us having an encounter with God as a corporate body of believers. I don't know how many's uh, in here today, but as you obviously, as you know, this is our first Sunday, but having two worship services. And, you know, I've I got to be honest with you, I really didn't know what to expect for the first worship service. But I asked John, I said, well, hey, how many people were here for the first service? He said, 80. It's like, bless God. <laughs> I was like, man, I was just so pleasantly pleased with that. So obviously uh, we're going in the right direction here. There's no substitute for us having these encounters with God as the body of Christ together. With all of our strengths, with all of our gifts, with all of our talents, with all of our weaknesses, God says, if you'll meet together in my name, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be there and you can have an encounter with me. That's what God's promised us and that's what we're expecting in Hebrews chapter 10, I really want to just focus in on verses 24 and 25, which say this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good works, not giving up meeting together as some is in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. In verse number 24 it says, Let us consider how. The word consider, it just simply means what, it, what you think it means. It means think about it, meditate on it, consider how am I going to, how am I going to encourage, how am I going to edify, how am I going to entice or, or help out somebody in the aspect of love and good works. So we're to think about it. How are we going to encourage one another and how are we going to be a benefit to the body of Christ? Verse number 25, we're going to skip to that, and then we're actually going to come back to verse number 24. Verse 25 talks about reasons uh, that we should meet together. We're to meet together to encourage one another and to edify one another. But there are some times when people don't want to do that, and they kind of pull back from meeting together as the body of Christ. And I think there are three basic reasons for that. One would be an introverted personality. How many of you, you're not going to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How many of you are extroverts? Yeah, we got some extroverts in the crowd. How many of you are introverts? Nobody's like introverts. There's one. Okay, now help me figure this out. I just said, how many of you are extroverts? Not a hand goes up. How many of you are introverts? I am, I am. <laughs> okay. We're hiring a counselor to be here next week. No, I'm just kidding. So that introverted personality just says, hey, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to be in a crowd. 
And so we pull back. Another reason why people don't meet together is because an inherited perspective. Well, mom and dad weren't really into church. Grandparents weren't really into church. I'm not really into church. I don't really meet together. It's just kind of an inherited thing. It's a habit that are, that's picked up from being imprinted as a child. But the third one would be an impaired soul. Well, I got hurt at church. Well, she said this and they said that and he did that and he didn't do it's All this things happened. People get together and things happen and sometimes people get hurt and it's an impaired soul. It's a damaged soul, if you will. And so we kind of pull back. Well, you know, it's the old Mark Twain, a cat that sits on a hot stove will not sit on a hot stove again. Nor will he sit on a cold stove. He stopped liking stoves. Okay? So we need to be aware. Obviously, you're here today, so you're not any of those things, right? Except the introverts that decided, I'm going to brave it and go to church, right? Just going to go for that. But when we talk to people who are not involved in the fellowship of the body of Christ, we can understand it's probably one of these three categories, and we can try and help them to kind of overcome that. So that's verse 25, but let's go back to verse number 24. How are we going to encourage one another? How are we going to stimulate one another, if you will? I think there are three words I want to focus on today, encouragement, correction, and insight. Encouragement, correction, and insight. We're going to spend a lot of time on one of those, but let's start off with encouragement. I'm so thankful that Hope Crossings is an encouraging church, that uh, we recognize there's one superstar at this church, and that's Jesus. The rest of us need not apply for the job. He's the only one. So we treat everyone equally. We treat everyone as important. Everyone who walks in the door, we encourage and we uplift. I think if there's one quality in the body of Christ today, I'm talking about the body of Christ in America, it's about encouragement. Uh, there's just a lot of, hey, man, it's awesome. We're going to live our best life. All of these things we're really encouraging, and we're very encouraging here at Hope Crossings. We love unity. We cherish unity. We fight for unity. We're going to maintain unity, and part of that is encouraging one another because we're here to help one another as we are being helped, and so encouragement is very, very important. Even though it's a basic word and we we use it all the time and we, we like it and all that, sometimes I just want to go to the dictionary and look up what is this word? What's the definition of this word? So I did that. I looked up encouragement in the dictionary, and there were a couple of different definitions to it. I just decided I can make my own definition. So here it is. I don't know what you're going to think about it. I'm an introvert, so don't tell me if you don't like it, okay? <laughs> my definition of encouragement is feeding a person's courage. Feeding a person's courage, courage. When you encourage someone, you're injecting or feeding that person's courage because we all have courage, right? And we all get discouraged and we need encouragement. And so when we're encouraging someone, we're feeding their courage because there's sometimes when we actually know that we can do something, but we don't have confidence to do it and therefore we don't do it. We, we really know we should, and we even know we could, but because there's, there's just a lack in that moment or in that season of our life, and we're pulled back. Our courage has been fasting, and our courage is weak, and our courage is malnutritioned. But what if? What if we just keep on encouraging each other and encouraging ourselves, feeding our courage, so that we are so stimulated, we're so integrated within this process of building up our courage that we go, you know what? 
I can do it. And we get so much courage that we believe we can do things that we actually can't do. And wouldn't you rather live that way than to go, well, I, you know, I don't want to. No, let's, let's pump it up and go, yeah, I think David wrote it in the Psalms. He says, I can run through a troop. I can leap over a wall. He was just showing that kind of courage. Man, with God, I can do it. God, I can do it. The Bible says God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that is working within us. So we're good at encouraging. So that's what we're going to talk about, encouragement. That's it. We're good at it. Keep doing it, okay? Could you do this for me? Don't make this hokey, okay? Turn to somebody and say, I'm going to keep encouraging you. All right, good. The second thing we're going to talk about, though, is correction. And we need to be about the business of considering how we're going to encourage one another. And part of encouragement is to bring correction. Now, every one of us in the room, I'm going to make this assumption, every one of us in the room have been corrected wrongly at some point in time. We've had somebody, instead of trying to help us, they just wanted to get it off their chest and go, man, I'm glad I told him off. I feel better. You're like, yeah, but now I'm, I'm weighted down. We've all been corrected incorrectly. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about having a church where we're like, we're going around picking out everybody's problems. I got to fix this guy and fix her and fix them. No, that's sin. Don't do that. That's wrong. But proper correction is encouraging. And it's brought to us in an encouraging way. So let's read some of the verses in the Bible about correction. They're they're up here for you. Psalm 141.5. Let the righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. (laughs) You didn't think you were going to read that today, did you? Let a righteous man strike me. That's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it, for my prayer will still be against the deeds of evildoers. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end, you will be counted among the wise. Every one of us want to be counted among the wise. He said that's the way to get it. Proverbs 19.25, flog a mocker, and the simple will learn prudence. Rebuke the discerning, and they will gain knowledge. Wow. One more, Proverbs 27. Five and six. Better is open rebuke than hidden sin. Wounds of a friend can be trusted. One verse it says they are faithful, but an enemy multiplies kisses. That's interesting, isn't it? The wounds of a friend, they're trustworthy. But an enemy is the one who just multiplies kisses. You see, if we've got people around us that are just telling us how great we are, oh, man, you're awesome, you're great, you're amazing, you're, and that's all they do, and that's all we get, and that's all we hear. Man, you're awesome, you're wonderful, you're great, it's amazing, wow. But there's nobody in our life going, hey, man, let's have coffee. Think, let's talk about this thing you're, you're getting ready to go into. It seems like it may be off-center from what your goals are. See, an enemy comes along and says, hey, you're awesome, man. Oh, you're going to do that? Sure, go ahead. You're wonderful. You can do anything. Go for it. Wow, awesome, great. 
The Bible says that person is not your friend. That person is your enemy. Because they're letting you go down a path that you shouldn't go down. And all the while, they're patting you on the back. You're awesome. You're wonderful. Instead of saying, hey, snap out of it. Let's talk about that. Well, I'm going to... Let's go over a story, and many of you have heard this story. It's in the Old Testament. If you want to turn there, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I've got the address there, but I don't, we're not going to have the verses up there for you. Sam, 2 Samuel 12. There's four characters in this story. First is David, as in King David. Next is a pretty young woman called Bathsheba. Now you know where we're going, right? Her husband, Uriah, and the prophet, Nathan. So we got King David, Bathsheba, Uriah, and Nathan. And the setting is Jerusalem. Here's the deal. So Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is in the army. He's out to war. He's fighting. Okay? Uh, Bathsheba is home and alone and lonely. David is home not lonely, but he's longingly. So he decides to go up on the second floor of his palace and just take a glance over the city. He sees the business district. That's doing well. He sees the residential section. There's a set of apartments over here. City park over there. He's going, this is good. He kind of focuses in on the residential section. And he sees a woman who has a short fence, and she's taking a bath. And she has the same attire on as the day she was born. She doesn't look like the day she was born. She looks... And he sends somebody, hey, I'd like to have coffee with her. They have an enjoyable evening. And about a month later, Bathsheba decides to write a love letter to David saying, there's a baby in our future. And now David's like, what? This was not in the plan. So now he's got to try and figure out what to do. So he sends word to the army captain, says, send Uriah home. He needs some R and S. You'll get it later. It's okay. But Uriah comes home, but he says, I will not go into my house because my brothers are out fighting. It's not right for me to go into my house and and have that enjoyment. I'm not going to do that. And then David's like, great. Like these righteous people, honorable people getting in my way. So David comes up with his plan B. He writes out an order for the commander of the army. Send Uriah out into the front lines when he's engaged in battle. Everybody else pull back, leave Uriah by himself, and let him be killed. He seals it, gives it to Uriah to give to the captain of the army. And that's exactly what happened. Uriah carried his own death sentence, if you will, to the commander of the army. That's what happened. Uriah is now killed. Word comes back to Bathsheba and to David, Uriah is dead. David probably squeaked out a false tear 
and then said, I think we should have a wedding. So Bathsheba and David get married. Seven months later, there's a baby. You imagine the, the announcement, the baby announcement? Here's a picture of our nine-pound preemie. In walks Nathan. And what we're going to do is read what Nathan said to David. Let's read it. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 7. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to David, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a strange a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, that man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are that man. I wonder how long did Nathan consider how he was going to help David? You don't just walk into the king and go, hey man, you're doing something wrong. Because if the king's in a mood, he's got some guys near him with a sword. And they'll take you out. I wonder how long Nathan considered how he was going to talk to David. Have you ever had somebody talk to you about something important, but you can tell they didn't put much thought into it? They just kind of wanted to get it off their chest. And it didn't work. Here Nathan is, he's saying, God, God, God I got I to talk to the king. and How am I going to do that? I believe the Holy Spirit gave Nathan this inspiration, this way of communicating to David. And it was, it was just ingenious because here Nathan is presenting a scenario, a parable, if you will, to David, giving David the opportunity to convict himself. And that's exactly what happened. So then all Nathan had to do was say, you're the man. You're the guy. You're the guy you just talked about because that's exactly what you did. Now, if this was the end of the story... Well, we'd be in trouble. If it's just a matter of sin, 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 oh, then he was confronted. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. David acknowledged, man, you're right. I'm that guy. I didn't want to be that guy. I never wanted to be that guy. I never wanted to be in this position, but I'm that guy. 
And they had a further exchange between Nathan and David in which was very, very good. Nathan explained to him, man, God brought you up from nobody and put you on the palace. Man, God, God's elevated you, and now look what you've done. And David was just convicted to his heart. He's just like, man, I blew it. Man, I blew it. And he repented. And he said, God, I am so sorry. You see, Nathan was needed by David in the moment Nathan came to David. That's when David needed him. But may I submit to you that David needed Nathan before he sent the order to kill Uriah. David needed Nathan before he called for Bathsheba to come to his house. David needed Nathan while David was watching porn. I'm not going to tell you that porn leads to adultery. I'm saying to you, porn is adultery. Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Do you have a David in your life? I'm sorry. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Is there somebody that you have said, hey, man, uh, you have permission. You, you can come talk to me. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Somebody there that can come along with encouragement, with love, with, with gratitude, with wisdom, and say, hey, man, let's talk about this thing you're getting ready to do. Hey, let's talk about this thing you just did. Do you have a Nathan in your life? The second question is, are you listening to the Nathan in your life? When, when, when your Nathan calls up and goes, hey, man, let's meet. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really busy. Uh, I got a lot going on. Work, kids, yeah, I got a lot going on. Correction, the issue of correction is one of the weakest aspects in the church today. I'm not talking about Facebook correction. I'm not talking about Republican, Democrat correction. Good Lord, no. I'm talking about the body of Christ coming together and saying, man, I want what's best for you. I want to encourage you by saying, let's examine this thing you're getting ready to do. Pray about it. Let's think about it. Let's talk about it. Let's make sure that this is not some offshoot of what God has planned for you. That's correction. That, that's love. That's encouragement. When we come together as the body of Christ and go, okay, hey, let's, let's get this thing going and let's do it together. Not one of us can reach our fullest potential individually. God didn't make us that way. He made us to integrate with one another, and part of that is encouragement. Part of that is also correction. A third part is insight. I want you to turn your Bibles, please, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Here we see the result of this correction and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that Nathan brought to David. We're going we're to see the fruit of it, if you will. We're going to see, we already see the fruit of sin, but now we're going to see the fruit of repentance. And this is a cool psalm. We're going we're to read the whole thing, Psalm 51. And at the beginning of the psalm, usually before verse 1 of a psalm, it generally says a little description about it. This is who wrote it, or this is, this is who, who it's sent to. 
David wrote most of the Psalms. There were a few that he didn't write, but this one obviously he wrote. And this is what my Bible says before verse 1. Yours might say something similar to this. It says, for the director of music, a Psalm of David. So no, we know, we know David wrote the Psalm, and we know that he gave it to the director of music. I find it interesting that it doesn't say, uh, David wrote this in his personal journal, which was under lock and key, and we did not discover it until after he died, which was his plan. Because that's what I'd have done. But he said, no, I did it. I repented. God forgave me. I'm going to write a song about it, and we're going to have everybody sing it. You know you've really repented and you know you've really been forgiven when you're willing to tell your story. And that's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. I spent years covering up my own depression. And even after I wasn't depressed, I didn't ever want to tell anyone. I didn't want to tell anyone that I spent three or four years really thinking about ending my life. But once I was able to share that, once I was able to get that out, man, that was freedom. That was such freedom. And this is what David's experiencing. Just say, wow, I did it. I repented. I'm forgiven. Let's sing. Well, let's read what he wrote. And we're going to see the impact that this has, not only on David's life, but on the whole city of Jerusalem. Let's read this whole psalm. It says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, 
Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altars. Here we see David. He's talking about, I sinned. There's blot out my iniquity, my transgression, my sin, a lot of verbiage there. But then he talks about God creating me a, a renewed heart, a right spirit. Just do all this work inside of me. But then he says, then I'm going to teach sinners your ways and they're going to turn back. Then I'm going to lift up praise before you. Then he says, you know what? Bringing a bull to you or a lamb to you, fine. But that's not really what you want. What you want is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You want a person who was bold in their sin, but then repented and came before you and recognized that being bold in sin is actually being broken. But it is the very thing that God heals us from. That confidence and boldness to sin, he breaks that and he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to teach you some things. And he brings forgiveness into our life. And then he rebuilds us and recreates within us so that we are bold for righteousness, but we are not arrogant in righteousness. We stand before him and say, God, I need to be corrected. I got stuff in my life and other people can help me. Why do I want to keep them at arm's length? Why do I want to keep the very people that can help me at arm's length? I need to welcome them in. Don't welcome everybody in. But I need to welcome the Nathans in. I need to have a Nathan in my life that can come along and speak to me. Because I want to become my best. I want to be able to give God my whole life and say, God, here I am. Use me in whatever way you can. He says, I'm going to teach sinners, and they're going to come back to you. And then he says there in verse number 18, he says, may it please you to prosper Zion. Now, Zion is a, another term for the city of Jerusalem. It was used a lot in the poetry and things like that. He's saying, may it prosper you, may it please you to prosper Jerusalem. And I got to thinking, what if the body of Christ here in Jackson County were to have this attitude, encouragement, yes, correction, yes, insight, yes, what would that do to Jackson County? I believe that God would look down and say, man, my church, big C, my church, the body of Christ is, yes, they're all about encouragement, yes, but they're also welcoming correction. I need a Nathan in my life. And now I'm giving them insight into what that does for them, what it does for the body of Christ, but also what it does for this community. And I think God would look down and say, it pleases me to prosper Jackson County because the church in Jackson County has got encouragement, correction, and insight. And look at what will happen throughout Jackson County when God says, wow, my body there, my church there, they got it. They're on, they're on track. They're on the right course. And man, that just brings a liberty and a freedom. And you talk about revival. See, revival isn't based on the songs that are sung. Revival isn't based on what time church starts. Revival isn't based on all of those things. Revival is based on the fact that we are walking in step with the Spirit. And that only comes through repentance and obedience. And when we do that, the sky's the limit. The sky is absolutely the limit. Insight comes through the gift of discernment and prophecy and love. When we're walking in step with him, then God begins to show us what's going to happen in the future in prophecy. He gives us discernment about people, and we're able to go to them and say, man, I think I see some things in your life. God's doing some great things in your life. Man, I think I see you, you in, in, 
growing in this avenue or in that gift, and we begin to see that insight into people's lives because we also can see an insight into this community that we live in. When we live in repentance and obedience, Jackson County will never be the same. God's called us to be together. God's called us to work together to encourage and correct and to have insight. And when we've got that, I'm telling you, God's going to pour out his spirit in this community like never before. And I'm ready for that. How about you? Who here today would say, you know what? I appreciate this, and this is all kind of new to me. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know this Christ, this Jesus that you're talking about. I've heard about him. I've heard about him my whole life, but I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with him. I've been holding him at a distance, but I don't want that anymore. I want to walk close to him. I want to receive his forgiveness, even for the first time today. Perhaps this is the first time you've ever asked God to to do anything in your life. You just kind of like, like yeah, he'll, he'll be in heaven. I'll be here. We'll be good. But now you're realizing that God didn't make you for that. God made you for a connection. And that connection is all because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The reason why we can encourage one another is because of the cross. Is because of the eternal life that God gives us. The reason why we come along with a correction is because of the cross. It's not based on what I think or what you think. It's because of the cross. The reason why we have insights because of the cross. Have you applied the work that Jesus did on the cross to your life? Because what he did on the cross was to destroy sin, to destroy death, hell, and the grave. But it has to be received by you and I individually. It has to be something that we say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to receive what God did for me. It's like the old illustration of somebody writes you a check for a million dollars and they sign it, but you never cash it. You don't have a million dollars. You have a piece of paper. But when you cash it, then you benefit. In the same way, Jesus signed the check for your eternal life, but unless you receive it, it doesn't do you any good. So will you receive that today? To say, Lord, I receive God into my life, his forgiveness, no matter what you've done. God will forgive you, and it's a matter of receiving that today. Let's pray and ask God to move in this place right now and bring salvation to people's lives.